Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDL 91.9, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula, Kenai Soldatna. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Let's get started, as always, with beer news. In October, the Brewers Guild of Alaska announced the winners of this year's AK Beer Awards. Gold, silver, and bronze medals were awarded in 15 different categories. I'm not going to read through the entire list, but I am going to name the gold medal winner in each category. For Pale Lager, the winner was 49th State Brewing Company's Alaska 8-Star Lager. For Golden Blonde and Other Light Ales, the winner was Sinisher Brewing's Leyland Lager. In the Red, Amber, and Brown Beer category, the winner was Midnight Sun Brewing Company's Fest Oktoberfest Lager. For Dark Beer, the winner was Turnergan Brewing Company's Zawiga Baltic Porter. For the Hoppy Session Beer category, the winner was Black Spruce Brewing Company's Sand Hill Sippa Hazy Pale Ale. In the Hazy Juicy IPA category, the winner was Devil's Club Brewing Company's Tube Creek Hazy IPA. For American IPA, the winner was Valdez Brewing Company's Little Odyssey IPA. In the Imperial IPA category, the winner was Devil's Club Brewing Company's Fresh Lines DDH Hazy Double Imperial Pale Ale. In the Imperial Ale and Lager category, the winner was Turnagain Brewing Company's Imperial Stout. For the Belgian, German, and Brett beer category, the winner was Midnight Sun Brewing Company's Brett Trippin. For the Sour Beer category, The winner was Turnagain Brewing Company's Goose. In the flavored beer category, the winner was Devil's Club Brewing Company's Do You Like Pina Colada Milkshake IPA. In the coffee and smoked beer category, the winner was Cassock's Brewery's Smoked Russian Imperial Stout. In the barrel-aged beer category, Midnight Sun Brewing Company's 27 BBA American Imperial Stout. And finally, in the fruit beer category, the winner was Turnagain Brewing Company's Pride and Passion. Congratulations to all the AK Beer Award winners. On October 22nd, the Anchorage Brewing Company held its annual release of A Deal with the Devil Barley Wine. 
eager beer lovers camped overnight in the parking lot so as to be first in line to purchase this highly prized brew. This year, the release was a box set of four 375 milliliter bottles, each finished in a different spirits barrel. The box set and commemorative glass were priced at a cool $250. On Halloween, Hoodoo Brewing Company of Fairbanks celebrated its 10th anniversary. On tap was this year's anniversary brew, Pumpkin Pie in a Glass. Midnight Sun Brewing Company has released two versions of its award-winning Arctic Devil Barley Wine this year. Each version was aged in bourbon barrels from a different distillery. One version used barrels from Weller Distillery, while the other used barrels from Blanton's Distillery. That's it for this month's beer news. We'll be right back with our first interview. What if accessing your personal and family immunization records was as easy as checking your phone? The Docket app is a secure option that allows Alaskans to quickly access their immunization records. Need immunization records for school or travel? Docket makes it simple and is available for download from the App Store or Google Play. Learn more at vaccinationrecords.alaska.gov. Paid for by the Alaska Department of Health. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host here, Bill Howell, on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. We've got Evan Wood, the co-founder of Devil's Club Brewing in Juneau, Alaska. Evan, how are you doing today? Doing well. <laughs> doing well, Bill. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, too. So, how are things at uh, Devil's Club? How did you guys, uh, did you guys weather COVID-19 without too much pain and suffering? <laughs> I guess without too much, I guess, is technically true. Uh, yeah, no, it feels nice to be kind of uh, hopefully out on the other side of it. There's still some woes, uh, but uh, things are certainly getting, feeling like they're getting back to new normal. Okay, good, good. How'd you make it through with staffing? I know a lot of people have had issues with that. Are you guys fully staffed up now and everything back to normal? No. Um, so that would still be the woes, but um, <laughs> everything else is feeling like it's back. Um, but yeah, staffing continues to be a, a major challenge for us. Um, but uh, but we're making it work. And um, and it seems like hopefully things are swinging back. Uh, and that that issue hopefully will start resolving itself soon. But okay. who knows? Are you guys maintaining uh What's your winter hours? Are you are you open seven days a week, six days a week? What's what are you doing these this time? For the first time ever, we're not open seven days a week, and okay. we actually close for two days a week, uh, and just truly just because of staffing, mm -hmm. uh, we just did not have the people to uh, not strain ourselves too thin uh, to continue to operate seven days a week. And the fall in Juneau is a very sleepy time, so it was an okay right. time to so what days hone you, things back. What days a week are you closed now? We're closed Sunday and Monday at the moment. Sunday and Monday. Okay, that's cool. I see your beers up here occasionally, up here as in, in La Bodega occasionally. But uh, where else are you guys uh, putting your stuff on offer? Just in the tap room and La Bodega. Okay, cool. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And that's uh, you're, and you're getting enough business and everything just throw over the counter to account for everything then. Yeah, and we're also a, a little baby brew house down here. We've only got a four-barrel system, so every time we brew, we only make about eight kegs. Okay, uh, okay. And so, uh, but we are in the middle of uh, expanding that to hopefully be able to 
uh, get more beer up to the rest of the state. Um, so we've got some new tanks on the way, and uh, we've been working on that for a while to try to to try to get more beer out the door. But at the moment, we can uh, basically just supply ourselves. Well, that was going to be my next question, if you had any ex- expansions planned in the near future. So more tankage coming in, you said? Yep, we're more than doubling our volume um, for our fermentation space. Uh, so we should be able to brew a lot more beer and other products as well and get them out to uh, the rest of the state, which we're really excited about. How are you fixed for square footage? Is this going to like fill you up? Do you still have additional room to expand? What's your what's your situation like there? Well, it's always, um, that's a moving target, but um, we actually, we're all full up already, but uh, we're, we're located in a building downtown that was right. Built about a hundred years ago, it was originally a theater. theater. Yeah, I remember. And that. Uh, on the first floor of the building, for the past oh, 30, 30 some years, First National Bank was in the building, and so uh, the back of our brewing space was a bank vault. Uh, they left it there when they left because it's not easy to do anything with a bank vault. <laughs> so we yeah. stored stuff in it, but there was a lot of space behind the bank vault, and so that was actually the landlord spent some money for us and demolished the vault, which was a tall order. And uh, that freed up the rest of the space in the back of the building for the tanks. And so there's still another bank vault that's in the way. So if we need more space, we'll have to look at the other bank vault. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're, you know, that uh, your business level of business is supporting expansion. It's kind of been the experience of pretty much every brewery I've seen up here since I got up here is, uh, You know, start off small, and the next thing you know, they're talking about, we need more tankage, we need a bigger brew house, we need more floor space, and away away we go. So, because Alaskans like their beer, and they like to support their local places. Absolutely. Yep, that's exactly what we've been trying to do, and that was always part of the plan, just start small and grow organically. So what's your, uh, I, I, I don't remember what size tap room you have, about how many seats can, how many people can you squeeze into it? Uh, we've got about 69 seats. Okay. That's pretty full on for us. We've been, uh, we've looked at expanding that space as well and maybe fit more people in the building, but at the moment we just can't make more beer. So, right. uh, there would be empty glasses if right. we allowed more seats and that would be no good. Well, are you guys planning to make any change in your license structure when, uh, what SB 76 goes into effect a little over a year from now? Totally. Yeah, it, it remains to be seen. We uh, There is now the availability for breweries to acquire the restaurant eating place license, which mm-hmm. is the, uh, the beer and wine license that right. uh, restaurants have. But that's a bit of a challenge for us because you need 50% food sales. And we do, uh, we do have a kitchen, we do run a little restaurant, but we'd have to, we'd have to really get creative and you know, people mostly come to a brewery for drink beer. So we, it would be a bit scary to make sure that we were getting 50% food mm-hmm. um, if we got that restaurant eating place license. But that, that, that is an idea that we've been entertaining for sure. Yeah, I think quite a few places are, are at least considering making that move in the direction if they feel like they've got enough, uh, enough food sales where they could stay on the right side of the law because obviously it would uh, – Give them a lot more flexibility than operating under the tap room restrictions. So 
Yeah, we would love to lose the taproom restrictions, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. yeah, pretty much everybody would. So what else is going on? Have you guys got any uh, any new brews that are going to be coming out soon that people should keep an eye out for or plans to be at any festivals? Oh, yeah, always new stuff happening in the brewery. Um, it's stout season, so we've got some fun stouts coming, some darker beers in general, actually. Uh, we've got a... Um, We've got a Belgian stout should be ready to go here pretty quick. That's a nice, fun style. We do a lot of Belgian beers here at Devil's Club. It's kind of uh, my business partner, Jake, and I uh, kind of fell in love with the brewing culture or scene uh, in Belgium and the Netherlands. And so that is the – we do a lot of those styles beer styles of beer because we really like them. And then we've – actually, on the Netherlands note there, we've got – are you familiar with the uh, Stroopwafel? Stroopwafel? A little uh, waffle snack. Oh yeah, cracker. Yeah, right. We're doing okay. a pastry stout with some Stroop waffles that'll come <laughs> out here soon. That's a classic Dutch treat. And so yeah, it's uh, and then we've also got another. We do a collab with a local coffee roastery called Sentinel Coffee. They make amazing beans, and we do a mochaccino stout, which is a a sort of pastry stout, but more like a uh, it's a mocha stout. So yeah. cocoa nibs. Coffee, coffee. Uh, lactose, lactose. Yeah. real tasty treat. So that's that's what we've been focusing a lot of the brewing power at the moment on is getting the getting the dark beers back on top. Okay, are you guys planning to enter a uh, barley wine and uh, to the fest competition in January? No, we missed the. Uh, we're never on top of it enough. <laughs> we don't normally brew barley wines, and uh, every year we're like, oh, we should. Oh, it's too late. Uh, we want to spend. Uh, we want to spend some good time on that. In order to uh, be happy with the product, we want to make sure mm-hmm. the barley wine has time to mature yeah. and get to where we want. And so, uh, yet again, we uh, we're not on the ball. So hopefully next year. Well, some of we those will... uh, stouts you're describing could might play in the winter seasonal category. Absolutely, yeah. But you do plan to be at the festival in January. We're actually in the decision making process at the moment okay. so no promises but we would okay. love to make it up that's a festival that we've never done we've done a couple other in anchorage you can always find us at haynes and of course the, uh, the capital city brew mm-hmm. fest here in juno but uh yeah that's certainly on the uh on the old company bucket list we got to make it up for beer and barley wine anything else going on there evan that you want to tell us about great question we are um we're excited about the uh, the new ability to get some events going here in the next uh, year and uh, I guess almost a little over a year, 2024. Mm-hmm. That's certainly always been something that we've wanted to get more into. So we're, we're already scheming and planning to try to figure out how we can best utilize those four yearly events that we can use. But otherwise, in the meantime, uh, we hope to get some more beers up to La Bodega real soon here. So just keep your eyes open. For all, I'm sure most of your listeners are, are not in Juno at the moment. Um, so please uh, keep your eyes open to Bodega for some new products going up there. And yeah, we, uh, we've, we've gotten a lot of love from the rest of the state, and we really, really appreciate it. And so we, uh, we want to give you guys more beer, but it's coming soon. All righty. I've been favorably impressed with every one of the, yours that I've been lucky enough to find. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us and uh, have a good uh, holiday season and hope uh, your staffing issues resolve themselves a little bit. And we'll uh, hopefully see you on the festival circuit. Absolutely. I'll, I'll see you there. All righty. Take care. Thanks. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. 
Hello, this is John Jackson, host and producer of Deeper Cuts Radio. Deeper Cuts features an artist, band, or topic. We play great music not often heard, mixing and mingling genre and era, creating a unique playlist for your listening pleasure. Tune in Fridays at 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM in beautiful Kenai, Alaska. Enjoy. Since we're moving into the heart of the winter season, I thought the proper beer style to focus on this month might be the winter warmer. Winter warmers are not technically a true beer style, but they can certainly be considered a widespread brewing tradition. The custom of brewing a stronger-than-normal dark ale for drinking against the chills of the coldest months of the year is likely as old as brewing itself in Northern Europe. Earlier unhopped or lightly hopped ales were particularly suited for being heated and spiced, giving rise to winter drinks such as ale posset, a drink consisting of piping hot ale mixed with bread, milk, sugar, ginger, and nutmeg. Other beer-based winter drinks included lamb's wool, a combination of hot spiced ale and roasted apples, and egg flip, made from hot mild ale mixed with eggs, brandy, and nutmeg. In Britain, winter ales were also flavored by the traditional method of floating spiced toast on their surface, a custom which survived at least until the start of the 19th century and gave rise to our tradition of toasting each other's health. The rise of hopped beer, which reacts badly to being heated, seems to have meant the decline of such hot ale drinks. However, drinkers continue to desire stronger, sweeter, and often darker beer during the winter months. In London in particular, this desire was met by the original Burton Ale. As I've discussed in the past, this now largely extinct style of beer was made by the brewers of Burton-on-Trent long before they began producing highly hopped pale ales for the India market, which were the ancestors of today's uber-popular IPAs. Burton Ale became a widely available beer in Britain, particularly during the winter months. Bass No. 1, the strongest Burton Ale in the company's range, was called in advertisements around 1909, quote, the winter drink. It was a very robust beer, and bottles from that first decade of the 20th century are still enjoyed occasionally today, over a century later. At least eight London brewers were making Burtons in the mid-1950s, with Courage Brewing sending out cards to its pubs reading, quote, Courage Burton is now on sale for the winter season. However, the fall in popularity of darker ales in the 1960s meant that Burton Ale almost disappeared, with about the last one being brewed by Young's at Wandsworth in London. In 1971, Young's changed the name of its Burton Ale to Winter Warmer, reflecting its seasonal nature and particular appeal. Another London brewer, Fuller's, replaced its Burton Ale with a strong, bitter winter beer in 1969. Two years later, this beer was renamed Extra Special Bitter, or ESB. It quickly became so popular that it was moved from a seasonal brew to a year-round offering and inspired a host of imitators, both in Britain and the U.S., Speaking of the U.S., the tradition of winter warmer beers or seasonal old ales was revived, like so many other beer styles, from the mid-1970s onward by the growing craft beer movement. The seasonal beers are generally 5 to 8% alcohol by volume, have an emphasis on darker malts, and may incorporate spices, harkening back to the old custom of concocting drinks of heated and spiced ale. 
If you're looking to try a traditional British interpretation of the style, Country Liquors in Kenai typically sells 500 milliliter bottles of Samuel Smith's Winter Welcome Ale. Looking at the beers produced locally, Kenai River Brewing's Winter Warlock Old Ale would certainly fit broadly within the winter warmer category. While unspiced, it is brewed to above average strength and released each year on October 1st. For its take on a winter seasonal, Alaskan Brewing produces its winter ale each year, flavored with Sitka spruce tips, a uniquely Alaskan version of a spiced winter warmer. A similar style of beer to the winter warmer is the Belgian-style strong dark ale. In this style, Sinashore Brewing of Anchorage produces no, while Midnight Sun Brewing for several years has brewed its Monk's Mistress, a beer in the same style. In the past, Midnight Sun has also released Dark Night, which it explicitly calls a winter warmer. This limited-release beer weighed in at 8.7% alcohol by volume, 30 IBUs, and was aged in used port wine barrels. Whether you choose a local example or one brewed outside, winter warmers make an excellent beer choice as we all endure the cold and dark of an Alaskan winter and dream of the coming spring. The holidays are traditionally a time when we gather with our friends and family to indulge in some excellent meals. As with most human activities, beer also has a role to play in lifting our spirits and enhancing holiday dining. In this segment, I want to focus on selecting beers which will pair well with traditional holiday foods. But before we talk specifics, let's look at some general principles to keep in mind when pairing beer with food. The strongest approach to pairing is to look at three interactions and decide which one best suits the dish to be paired. These interactions are complement, contrast, and cut. The palate will react to each combination of food and craft beer by recognizing flavors that match each other, that's complement, flavors that intensify one another, that's contrast, and flavors that cleanse the palate, that's cut. It could be argued that all three of these interactions happen to some extent with each bite and sip. They become more or less noticeable depending on the dominant characteristics of the food and the craft beer in the pairing. Let's start with complement. Successful pairings often work by finding harmonies between the craft beer and the dish. This can be done by identifying complementary flavor or aroma elements that tie the beer and the dish together. For instance, roasting, grilling, or browning proteins will resonate with elements of malt in craft beers. The malt used in craft beer is kiln to a desired roast color, and browning is what produces that color. The chemical reaction between amino acids and reducing sugars is the same, whether it be in baking brioche, roasting a duck breast, or kilning malt for beer. Next, there's contrast. Creating a contrasting pairing can often be the most challenging for the palate. In almost every pairing, there will be subtle contrasting taste and aroma elements between the craft beer and food. An overall contrasting pairing is one in which the main flavor profile of the dish contrasts against the main flavor profile of the craft beer. Sweet versus sour and bitter versus sweet are common dominant flavors in contrasting pairings. A classic example, and one of the simplest for the palate to begin to understand, is oysters on the half shell paired with a dry stout or porter. The rich, roasty notes of the beer clash pleasantly against the salty brininess of the oyster. Contrasting flavors can be created by 
using the sweetness of a malt to contrast salt in a dish, focusing on the bitterness of hops to play off the sweetness of a dish, using a higher alcohol content craft beer to contrast sweeter notes in a dish, or pulling out darker roast malt notes to calm sweet notes and proteins. The hop bitterness of a classic pale ale will contrast against the sweet and rich notes of fat in a classic cream sauce. The hops may come across as almost too bitter, but are balanced by the sweetness of the malt. The hops cut the richness of the sauce off the palate to allow the malt to come through. Finally, there's cut. To cut the palate means to use the craft beer to cleanse away the flavors from the dish, thereby resetting the palate back to neutral. A sip of craft beer after each bite should leave the palate feeling refreshed, awakened, and ready for the next bite. For instance, the hops of an IPA might cut the notes of smoke on a grilled salmon, or the alcohol of an imperial stout might cut away the richness of chocolate. Hops, sweetness, alcohol, souring techniques, and carbonation are all the key components in craft beer to create a cutting effect on the palate. For hops, the bitter strength and astringency of them can lift fat off the palate. When it comes to sweetness, a sweet finish can cut away acidic flavors, leaving a pleasant sensation after each bite. For alcohol, if the flavor profile of the dish pulls the alcohol forward on the palate, the alcohol will work to cut the flavors off the palate. For sour, sour tart and funky flavors that pucker the palate and pull into the jaw can cut away sugary and fruity notes. And finally, carbonation. The scrubbing effect of carbonation's bubbles helps diffuse the richness of food. Here's a classic cutting example. Using the carbonation and citrus notes of a saison to cut away the buttery, rich notes of Dungeness crab on the palate. The crab sets up as rich and sweet on the palate, while the carbonation of the saison lifts the craft beer off the palate and wipes away the notes of salt water with crisp, citrusy yeast notes. Okay, now that we've covered those three principles, let's talk about some beer styles which pair well with the traditional holiday meal of roast turkey and all the trimmings. First up, there are Oktoberfest or Marzen beers. Typically released in early fall, these beers complement a wide variety of snacks and starters, including roasted and salted nuts and pumpkin seeds, as well as fresh, mild, or sweet cheeses. Stronger imperial versions easily carry over into the rest of the meal. You'll find their understated but interesting flavor profile pairs well with almost any course. Next, consider a Belgian-style Saison or farmhouse ale. These bright, spicy, and crisp, golden-hued beers are champagne-like in effervescence and perfect for the season. With hints of citrus peel and ginger, farmhouse ales and saisons have a firm balance of bitter and sweet. They pair nicely with salty or seed-covered crackers served with strong, funky cheeses, light salads as a first course, and seasonal fall desserts. As part of a main course accompaniment featuring roast chicken or turkey, you'll find the subtle complexities of this style worth journeying through a meal with. Also, Belgian-inspired are the Golden Strong Ales, like Duval or Midnight Sun's Fallen Angel. 
These light-colored golden ales are perfectly suited for the first course that includes a bright salad highlighting fresh green apple, dried cranberries, and a poppy seed vinaigrette. With its added sugars, Belgian-style golden ale is bubbly sweet and has a spicy Belgian yeast character with subtle notes of banana and clove. Serve it with a dessert course between bites of apple or cherry pie, or offer it to those who typically choose a Chardonnay to go with their dinner. They will appreciate this beer throughout the meal. Beers brewed from rye also deserve serious holiday consideration. Rye beers have a malty sweetness and rich rye color, along with a spicy and delightfully bitter citrusy bite that makes a good first course selection with strong cheese and salty snacks, like those on a traditional charcuterie board. It also stands up nicely to this Thanksgiving plate without getting lost amid rich and savory flavors typical of the meal. Gravy-laden plates with bread stuffing and roasted garlic mash are ideal pairings for a Belgian-style quadruple, an earthy, complex, and malt-forward beer. Equally interesting as a dessert pairing with caramel or molasses-forward desserts like pecan pie or sweet potato casserole, this brew is one to savor from the main course through the end of the meal. What if your family traditions run counter to the traditional turkey and gravy feast? There are plenty of beers for you as well. Smoked salmon works phenomenally well with either a Belgian wit or a German Wiesbeer. The spiciness of these beer styles manages to complement, contrast, and cut the smoky and oily fish notes. Those beers also make a great pairing with a spiral cut ham. Strongly smelling of caramelized banana with a spicy clove flavor that becomes more noticeable as it warms, an imperial Wiesenbach is almost a dessert in itself. Pouring a rich, dark honey or caramel color, it's ideally served with banana bread pudding and vanilla ice cream, alongside creme brulee, or as a carbonated counterweight to the classic New Orleans dessert, Bananas Foster. This beer is a unique and intriguing way to finish a meal. Imperial stouts have a deep roastiness balanced by chocolatey bitterness and a hint of anise. Serve this style alone as an after-dinner treat or with rich chocolate ice cream, coffee and cinnamon almond biscotti, or with custard pies like sweet potato and pumpkin for a memorable end to your dinner party. Doppelbachs also pair wonderfully with chocolate desserts. Their malt notes complement the sweetness of the chocolate, while their high alcohol and carbonation serve to cut the richness, cleanse the palate, and make it ready for another bite. No list of holiday beer pairings would truly be complete without mentioning barley wine. Often aged in bourbon barrels, these rich and raisiny beers are heavy on the malts. Truly meant for sipping, barley wines move over into booze territory and will likely appeal to fans of caramel and malt-dominated spirits. These thick, decadent beers are desserts in and of themselves, though in Britain they are traditionally served with aged Stilton cheese. If you find yourself a guest at, rather than the host of, the holiday meal, may I strongly suggest that instead of the customary bottle of wine, you consider bringing a bottle of beer. A beer from Belgium or brewed in the Belgian style, packaged in a handsome 750 milliliter cork bottle, makes a wonderful presentation. And if you're a beer lover like me, it also ensures there will be a decent craft beer to drink alongside your meal. Whichever style or styles of beer you choose to accompany your holiday meal, I hope you all enjoy the season.
This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next interview. Tune in on Sundays from 7 to 9, where I, Josie Oliva, will be your host for Pickled Beats, a radio show that explores obscure subgenres and oddly specific themes, right here on Pickle Hill Radio, KDLL. Up next, we've got an interview with Greg Haas of Stony Creek Brew House in Seward. Greg, how are you doing today, sir? I, I'm having a great, great start to uh, what's going to be a good holiday week. Good. It's been about a year since we had you on. I know you guys have made, you've been working hard over there. So why don't you bring us up to speed? Where's things stand with the brew house? I know you've, you closed your tap room, right? But mm-hmm. you're still working hard on making beer. Yeah, you know, I mean, the last time we spoke um, was probably one of the most anxious times in a small business because the the money was out the door, but the equipment was on its way. Um, we had uh, maybe a month or so after uh, we spoke, a uh, big 40-foot Connex showed up with a whole bunch of stainless steel in it. And uh, that was the, uh, the real eye-opener of me saying, okay, this is, this is where we're uh, trying to be a part of the community. And this is going from the, the 20-gallon system, which helped me do the very small tasting room and very small beers, to something where I was actually going to be producing volume that would be good for Seward and all the folks that are coming through town. So how was your summer? Uh, this, uh, you, you know, the summer was a combination of uh, two steps forward and two steps back <laughs> with the occasional bright, sun, sunny, uh, sunshine, hope that things were going to, you know, change to two steps forward, maybe one step back. A, a lot of lessons learned there. You know, building a Frankenstein system, um, the, the, you know, the, the root of it is that I went from maybe six accounts clear up to, uh, maybe about 18 to 20 accounts. So we had, we, we, we took off in the sense of all the right relationships with the folks that hold the liquor licenses around Seward. Uh, everybody who I wanted to work with was very receptive and encouraging. Uh, and, and they were also very patient with me because there were a lot of nuanced things that, uh, the breweries, the professionals, they, they know through experience that I was learning through, uh, through hard knocks. Um, but the summer, the summer was a great, great lesson to, to figure out how to run a system, how to manage the, uh, the, the logistics, the deliveries, the pushing beer out, um, learning that a, a half barrel of keg only gets heavier the more you move. <laughs> uh, so try, trying to do it all clean and right in a way that helped these folks because the, the town of Seward moves at a million miles an hour all summer. And I can't slow them down because that's the big window where those businesses are looking to pay their bills. So uh, give us the specs on your, your new brew house that you're running now. Great. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a repurposed brew system. I bought it from a fellow in Colorado who transitioned out of the industry. Uh, it is a seven-barrel system manufactured in Colorado, which worked out pretty well because I was able to get a rake and plow system uh, re, uh, re- or, you know, um, refitted into the uh into the mash tun that turned out to be a huge i mean that was just a lifesaver of of epic proportions i would have one day i was sitting down and pretty close to that head head and hands moment where like what did i get into because i had a stuck sparge 
and I got real lucky to, to learn that, you know, using the, uh, the rake and plow system can help me correct the things that I didn't know. Uh, so I, so using that system, uh, worked out to be wonderful. I had three fermenters, a uh, big part of the summer was actually buying a, a, a double brew fermenter. So I've got a big 14 barrel fermenter that's going to be installed for this coming summer. Uh, the, the bright tanks worked out great. Uh, it took me a while to get my cold room installed. Um, then I had the, uh, that ready to go and getting the right tools, the right, uh, designs for the system to move around kegs and then to get them in my van and get them delivered. It was, uh, it's, it's been a, a rock solid system. It worked great. I was very lucky to have the help of some local contractors to get the, uh, the ventilation, the, the right, uh, uh, steam vents and exhaust vents installed, uh, a local buddy, wonderful welder helped me get my water tanks together so instead of heating the water in my boil kettle and pumping it around i've got about 1100 gallons of capacity for for cold water cold liquor tanks and hot liquor tank uh, so a lot of things came together with just the help and the fact that a lot of folks were real excited to have a neighborhood brewery going up and that's how i kind of made it all happen great so have you got any plans in the foreseeable future to reopen that tap room you know that's uh, that the, the tap room dream is is front and center for me, uh, and that's just from if, you know if we did a case study on on why breweries need the balance or they need the uh, the, the direct sales. Um, I'm the only I think I know I'm the only guy in the state that is 100% wholesale right now, and there's a lot of pros to that in terms of the relationships and the collaboration that I've been able to build with so many other restaurants and, and publicans and the, and the keepers around, you know, the folks who sell to the customers. Uh, but also it, it, the, the relationship between what my grosses is versus what my costs are. Uh, the tap room is definitely something I need to, I'm working on right now very aggressively. Yeah. Uh, the margins, the margins on margins. wholesaling beer are not very big compared to retailing you know, not, at a tap room. Big time. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it was never something I wanted to do long-term. But if I could trade uh, some of the stability for those relationships that I've been able to cultivate right now, I think it's, that's been very positive for me. But for that long-term viability and making sure that I'm here in town in the next five, ten years, uh, I've got some good people who are excited about what they're seeing I'm doing. And they're talking to me about ways to, to grow uh, and, and kind of work focus on those margins a little bit. Uh, but yes, sir, big, big part for us is finding ways to continue just to reach the, the folks that get excited about community beer. So if uh, people wanted to find your beer, where should they look? Well, right now we are, we're all over Seward. Most people say, you know, Greg, we want to hear about a tasting room, but we're not having any problem finding your beer. Uh, Tony's is one of the best bars downtown. Uh, Flamingo, which was the old thorns. Uh, the owners there have really done a good job of, of building a great, uh, a great brand, and they brought me in as their beer on top of some some cocktails that they like to feature. Uh, Breeze Inn's been good for me. Uh, Mermaid Grotto, the Highliner. There's a, there's a lot of spots, and then also uh, the the Yukon, uh, and then Ale House. So so just about everybody in town uh, who's open, who's got the lights on and the doors open, uh, they're selling the beer, which has been great because I love going in and hearing what people think. Uh, and that's and, and on top of that, I was able to kind of cultivate a good friendship with the owners up at tent city tap house in anchorage and so that is our uh, our only tap outside of seward 
and that's been real nice because I get some uh, some texts and you know from other friends who live up there in Anchorage, and they like to see some of the creative uh, breweries that are outside of Anchorage coming into coming into town, and so we've got a tap there. Oh, good, good. So you got any uh, new stuff coming on that people should be keeping their keeping an eye out for in the next month or two? Yeah, actually, uh, so so we've solidified. You know, it, it's been nice. We've dialed in the routine. Um, you know, scaling up was probably the, the one of the biggest things that I had to learn this summer was how to take my recipes from 20 gallons to 210 gallons. Uh, it's definitely not linear, and I knew that going into it. Uh, so we, we, you know, I was just sitting down last night, and I, in all, in all humility, I sat down with my IPA, which you know is, is something that's really popular right now. And I said, "This is the IPA, man. I worked all summer to brew this, and now I finally feel like feel real good about the ratios of hops, the timing, uh, giving it the time to really settle out." Uh, we do have a collaboration coming up with the local coffee roasters here in Seward, Cane's Head Coffee. So we'll be doing a coffee stout, um, and it actually fermented out very dry. So, uh, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good that the coffee coupled off with the roasty notes that we put in there is going to make a, a nice clean beer. Uh, that's something I'm pretty excited about. Uh, and then also just not just stylistically is that um, th- this off season, you know, because I don't have the tasting room where right, we unfortunately aren't able to really host people. Uh, what we want to be is just an advocate for the community. And then what we're going to do is really make a push. Uh, once we get through the next few weeks, we've, we've had a couple setbacks with some glycol, our glycol system and a motor and, and finding the right replacement parts. Now, once we get everything up and running, uh, we're going to be pushing a lot of growler sales and with a lot of that, uh, the proceeds from that going back into the community. We've got a good partnership with the Nordic Ski Club and who put a lot of work into helping us maintain our trails around Seward. And so the, the folks that are coming by, once they do get some open hours, for growler fills, a lot of those uh, those monies are going to be going back into the community. You're going to start doing growler fills. You're just not going to have a tap room for people to consume. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, it's the the the, seven, the the tap room got a lot skinnier. Uh, you know, is the way I kind of describe it. When you add uh-huh. those 200 gallon kettles on uh-huh. or tanks on both walls uh, all around the brewery, um, but we will be able to do some uh, some growler fills and. Uh-huh. I've gotten, you know, right now this downtime uh, where I haven't brewed in a few weeks, uh, so things are are pretty good uh, in terms of the capacity I have right now. We're really looking hard at either uh, adding some square footage uh, here on the property or partnering up with some folks in town uh, for some direct sales uh, that we can do. You know, it's it's fun to sell the wholesale, the Kolsch, the Amber, the IPA. But I really like doing some sours. I like doing some wild beers. I want to do some some dark beers, some aged beers, some barrel. You know, there's a lot of creativity that uh, that folks really want from uh, from a small brewery, and that's what I need to create the the floor space to host people in. Mm-hmm. You got any plans to make it to the uh, big festival in January up in uh, Anchorage? Well, I remember that's where we actually had a chance to meet face to face last year. Yep, uh, that was wonderful. That was so much fun for me. That that's an absolute. I think that Shelley and Lee, with the Brewers Guild, just do a wonderful job with it. Uh, so one thing that I'll be able to do this winter is make it definitely back up there. I'm really looking forward to getting over to the Frozen River Fest. I, I couldn't go to, you know, I, I love what the Rotary's doing over in Soldatna, 
and I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, so my hope is to, to make sure that my schedule is clear so we can get out for the festivals and, and say hi to folks. Uh, you know, the industry is just so friendly that I, I talk to people. I just got a text about doing a collaboration coming up with another brewery. Uh, the guys are teasing me. You know, I, I, I talk to, you know, it's just, it's a fun fraternity. And I want to be there in person to smile and high five and, and, uh, and show that we're still, you know, we're, you know, it's a great community to be in. Yeah, it's a good group. I think the uh, Frozen River Fest should be the third Saturday in February. So if you want to mark, mark that one on your calendar. I mean, that was, a, that was a tough one last year. I was, you know, still learning to get my feet underneath me. But I feel like this is a year where that's something I want to go over to. I, I actually sat down and had a great conversation there with Kenai River Brewing. Uh, just talking about the, the industry, the changes, um, and, you know, you, you, you've seen it as an Alaskan beer drinker over the 20 years that I've been up here, but to actually sit down and, and talk about some of the things that we've, that we've done, uh, to solidify roles in communities and keep businesses viable. Um, there's so much that I can keep learning. Uh, so I'm really, really lucky to have that advice from folks outside. Well, it's glad great things are going well for you. Anything else you want to tell our listeners? Yeah, I think I, I actually I think the the fun part too is uh, where I think our conversations because I think you do a great job of checking in on on where we're coming and going. Is in the future you're going to hear me start talking about you know the the business behind the brewery. Uh, I was really lucky. My wife did a wonderful job of working with some grants, so we were able to add some solar panels. To our uh, to our brewery, which has made a big difference in the summertime heat and water, um, and and some of the things that we're doing coming up as uh, as Seward is is continuing to grow as a community and learning from what folks are doing to solidify roles, helping out communities through what we do by making a fun product. Well, hey Greg, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Really do appreciate it, and uh, look forward so, to seeing you in January, man. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for what you're doing. I really appreciate it because it keeps the dialogue wide open and everybody loves how we're part of the community. So thank okay. you so much, Bill. Hi, this is Charlissa Megan, known as Truth Is. And I'm Eva Knutson. And, and we, we are, are the Sound Hunters. KDLL is not only just known for its factual information, but its great music from local DJs like us. And we have a new show Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. So join us as we drag out the old case logic and explore some of our favorite tunes and new-to-us music. Right here on KDLL 91.9. That's Wednesday nights, 7 to 9 p.m. Hello and welcome back to Drink on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Now that Thanksgiving is behind us, we are well and truly into the Christmas season. Whatever reservations you might have regarding the current state of the Christmas holiday in America, too commercial, too secular, too religious, too you name it, there's one thing we should all be in agreement on. Christmas beers are wonderful. You might think that beer and Christmas don't really go together, but you'd be very wrong. In fact, folks were brewing and drinking strong fermented drinks to celebrate the winter solstice long before there even was a Christmas. At Stonehenge and other sites, prehistoric peoples worshipped the sun and must have celebrated the solstice, likely with fermented grain. In Rome, at the time of the birth of Christ, the biggest festival of the year was the Saturnalia, held from 17 to 25 December, a time when masters and slaves exchanged roles, gifts were exchanged, and pretty much everyone got rip-warring drunk. Sound familiar? 
The Vikings were no slouches either when it came to celebrating at this time of year. Imagine sitting in your dark and smoky Viking longhouse, wondering if this might be the year when spring wouldn't come, heralding Ragnarok and the end of all things. How happy would you be when the days finally stopped getting shorter and started getting longer again? Wouldn't you want to crack open a nice strong ale and celebrate? As Alaskans, we can sympathize. But by 800 AD, Norwegian farmers were required by law to brew a strong Yule beer using a weight of grain equal to the weight of said farmer and his wife. Since this was before hops were used in brewing, these ales would have been flavored with berries, herbs, and spices. Of course, Christmas brews weren't popular everywhere. A short, easily overlooked paragraph from an early law book of the Massachusetts Bay Colony reads as follows, quote, For preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction, by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God and the offense of others, it is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof, that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, shall upon such accountants as aforesaid, Every person so offending shall pay of every such offense five shillings as a fine to the county. End quote. Yes, you heard that right. In 1659, the Puritan government of Massachusetts Bay Colony actually banned Christmas. So, how did one of the largest Christmas holidays come to be persecuted in the earliest days of New England? Christmas in 17th century England actually wasn't so different from the holiday we celebrate today. It was one of the largest religious observances, full of traditions, feast days, revelry, and cultural significance. But the Puritans, a pious religious minority, who, after all, fled the persecution of the Anglican majority, felt that such celebrations were unnecessary and, more importantly, distracted from religious discipline. They also felt that due to the holiday's loose pagan origins, celebrating it would constitute idolatry. A common sentiment among the leaders of the time was that such feast days detracted from their core beliefs. Quote, they for whom all days are holy can have no holiday. So no Christmas beer in Boston circa 1659. Over the centuries, Christmas and brewing both changed, but the tradition of brewing special, strong ales for the holidays continued, and still does in many small traditional breweries in Europe. In America, prohibition meant an end to Christmas beers, as it meant the ends of so many other things. After repeal, some of the restored American breweries again released Christmas beers, but most of them were just their standard beers in a slightly different decorated bottle or can. Christmas beers seemed destined to be relegated to the history books, at least in America. But when all seemed lost, craft brewers stepped up to carry on this proud tradition. Back in 1975, Fritz Maytag, owner of Anchor Brewing in San Francisco, and the man many folks consider to be the godfather of American craft brewing, decided to brew a Christmas ale. Fritz thought it was time to renew the ancient tradition of brewing something special for the holidays, and Anchor Brewing has done so for every Christmas since. The recipe used to brew the Christmas ale is different every year, though. Since 1987, the recipe has always included spices. Which spices? That's a secret that Anchor keeps to itself, so if you'd like to know, pick up a six-pack and guess with the rest of us.
Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, another pioneer of American craft brewing, began releasing a Christmas ale in the late 1980s. Their celebration ale is eagerly awaited each year by beer lovers around the world who love to debate the virtues of each year's vintage as compared to the last. Unlike Anchor's Christmas Ale, Celebration Ale is not spiced. Instead, it's an amped-up version of Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale, being stronger, darker, and more hoppy. It's a fantastic beer, perfect for those long, cold winter evenings by the fire, and very widely available. Alaska Brewing in Juneau produces their very interesting winter ale this time of year, though perhaps it's not strictly a Christmas ale rather than a winter seasonal. It's in the style of an English old ale, malty and strong, but enlivened by the addition of Sitka spruce tips. Using spruce tips in beer has a long history in Alaska and harkens back to those pagan Vikings brewing their Yule ales and flavoring them with what they had at hand. Glacier Brewhouse in downtown Anchorage is famous for its 12 Days of Barley Wine event. Each December, Glacier offers four different barley wines or imperial stouts each day for 12 days. If you find yourself in Anchorage in mid-December, it's definitely an experience worth checking out. Moving on to our local breweries here on the peninsula, Kenai River Brewing Company releases its excellent Winter Warlock Old Ale each October 1st. This beer is brewed each October and then cold conditioned for a year, giving it a smooth, mellow flavor that conceals its 9% alcohol by volume very well. Other breweries around the state typically choose the holiday season to release their boldest and strongest beers, like barrel-aged stouts and barley wines. But whatever you choose to drink during the holidays, do it responsibly and enjoy the time with your friends and family. Hi, this is Chef Steve Horn inviting you to join me for the reopening of the Blues Cafe Monday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM starting January 17, 2022. New music, old music, my favorites, your favorites, and any music that is good for the body, mind, and soul. Make your reservations to join me on Monday evenings at the Blues Cafe. Thank you. For our final segment today, I want to talk about the science of brewing, specifically about malt. Malt has been called the soul of beer. It's the main fermentable providing the sugar that yeast used to create alcohol and carbonation. Malt has an influence on beer's aroma, alcohol level, body, color, flavor, and head retention. Barley is in many ways the perfect brewing grain. Not only does it contain a large reserve of starch that can be converted into sugar and a husk that makes a perfect filter bed, but barley contains the tools in the form of enzymes to do the job without adding anything but hot water. Unlike fruit such as grapes or apples, barley has some sophisticated defenses to keep yeast from consuming its sugars. First, grains like barley are armor-plated. A mature grain kernel has a skin so hard that no microbe or insect can penetrate it. Even we humans have to use stone or metal mills to crack it open. Then, once the grain is opened, the fuel within has more protection. It's not stored as a simple sugar, as in fruits, but as long-chain starch molecules that are too big for microorganisms such as yeast to attack. If the sugar molecule is a brick, the starch molecule is a brick wall. When the yeast runs into it, nothing happens. 
That's where we humans enter the picture. We harvest the barley grain and then modify it via malting into something the yeast can consume. In return, the yeast produces the alcohol we want. We've been engaged in this partnership with yeast for thousands of years, though we've actually understood what was going on for less than 200. Basically, when we modify or malt barley, we trick the grain into believing it should sprout. We do this by soaking it in water. Fresh barley has a moisture content commonly around 13%. This is raised often to more than 40% until the barley begins to germinate. Enzymes in the grain begin converting the starch molecules into simple sugars to feed the growing plant embryo. Small rootlets called chits begin to emerge. At this point, we interrupt the process and dry out the grain in a kiln. Reducing moisture content to less than 4% kills the embryo and stabilizes the grain with lots of nice simple sugars available for consumption by yeast. Malt is converted barley or other grains that have been steeped, germinated, heated, kilned or roasted in a drum, cooled and dried, and then rested. The amount of time spent in the kiln or roasting drum and the maximum temperature reached are critical for determining what type of malt is produced. The Maillard reaction, sometimes called non-enzymatic browning, is the term used collectively to describe the chemistry of browning. It describes all the commonly encountered browning during cooking, including the char on a burger, the caramely golden goodness of sautéed onions, and the roastiness of chocolate and coffee. Thanks to its impact on barley during the kilning process, it's a major player in beer's flavor and appearance. There are four basic malt types. Base malts are lightly kilned and can serve as the entire brew. Even in the darkest beer, such as stouts, base malts will be most of the grain bill. Pilsner, Pale, Vienna, and Munich malts fall into this category. Kilned or colored malts are used in small amounts, up to 20% of the recipe. Amber and brown malts fall into this category. Crystal or caramel malt is made in a special process where wet malt is stewed around 150 degrees Fahrenheit. The result is a glassy, crunchy texture and a range of caramel, raisin, or burnt sugar flavors. Roasted malts and grains include chocolate and various shades of black malt. Typically, these heavily roasted malts make up less than 10% of the recipe. The end result of all of this is to produce barley malt, which the brewer can simply soak in hot water to produce the sugary wort, which will be the food for yeast and eventually become a delicious beer. Well, that's it for this month's show. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our final quote this month comes from the chairman of the board, the late, great Frank Sinatra, who said, quote, I feel sorry for people who don't drink. When they wake up in the morning, that's as good as they're going to feel all day. Until next time, cheers. the world.